If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we've got a conversation about female fighters through history with the author Julie Wheelwright. Julie's recent book, Sisters in Arms, traces the stories of women warriors from antiquity to the new millennium. I met up with Julie in London to find out more. How have women been involved in conflicts through history? And in which conflicts did you find female fighters? Well, we can go all the way back to antiquity. We can go back to the Scythian women who were mythologized by the Greeks as the Amazons. And the Scythian women belonged to a nomadic, a sort of nomadic tribes who ranged all the way from the area of the Black Sea, which is now in Ukraine, all the way to China. 
And so these were women who were raised in, a, in an egalitarian society or more egalitarian society. So they were dressed in, they wore the same clothes as boys, and they were also given weapons training, and they were also taught how to ride horseback. And so the Greek uh, warriors would see these women and um, sort of assume that they were, you know, these kind of mythic figures. So that was one way in which the myth arose. And the other way in which the myth arose was through these stories filtering back through slaves that the Greeks had taken into their households. And so there was issues around translation. Um, so that's the kind of founding myth of the woman warrior. But um, I think that a lot of people sort of forget, I mean, if we're thinking about Europe and then thinking about North America, um, sort of forget that um, armies were really not professionalized until the middle of the 19th century. And so in the absence of this professionalization, which kind of separated men and women, um, you had uh, male soldiers who would go off to war, taking their wives and children with them, or they would take their wives. And then because they were often gone for a very long time on the campaign, uh, these children would be produced and the children would be become involved as well. So I kind of looked at three different ways in which women entered combat historically. And I know that I'm taking this huge, broad sweep, but I'm really trying to follow through an idea about the woman warrior. And one of the ways um, in which women become involved in combat was almost informally. Um, you know, you have wives wives on the campaign trail, and, and one of the functions that they served was they were operating as settlers, so they were providing sort of food and drink to the soldiers actually on the field. And so you have these scenarios where women end up picking up a weapon or they kind of informally get involved in combat. Um, the second way that this happens, I suppose, is when you have women who are passing as men. So there's almost like, you know, the first instance of women sort of informally becoming engaged in conflict. Um, so, for example, during the, um, the Battle of Waterloo, you have these records of women on either on ships or on land who are just happen to be there. Um, they're, you know, someone is injured and they pick up a weapon. So we have some of records of some of those instances. And then you also have women who, um, who actually pass as men. And those are the ones I think that in some ways are the most fascinating because there's a the question, well, how did they do it? Why did they do it? And what was their experience? And what you find is, um, a whole sort of slew of stories, almost like a sort of literary convention that develops from the 18th century onwards about these women. So um, in the kind of romantic ballad version, you know, they, they, they're they in deeply in love with their husband or boyfriend or fiance, and he gets called up or, or has to go off. And so they decide to disguise themselves as a man and go off and, and to find him or to join him. Um, but in reality, we have some very famous um, English and Irish women, um, I mean, if we're thinking about the 18th century, who do precisely that. And one of them is Christian Davies, who's a publican in Dublin. And um, 
she, her husband disappears um, (laughs) and uh, she goes off to find him. So she enlists in a regiment. And one of the things that's so interesting about the record of that story. So um, I should say that a lot of these women's stories were written up. They weren't necessarily literate, but their stories were written up by someone else. So it was almost, you know, Christian Davies stories is actually attributed to Daniel Defoe. We're not sure whether he wrote it or not, but this idea of a woman, a plebeian woman, if you will, who tells her story to someone else, and there's a kind of dramatization. So Christian Davies' husband goes off. She goes off to find him. She enlists in a regiment. And the way that she describes her enlist, uh, you know, her her sort of transformation from, from female to male is simply by you know, she she puts on a, a suit of clothes and off she goes. And, and it, it, it's kind of um, fascinatingly unproblematic, if you will. And then one of the one of the things about her story is that her father, she says, fought in the Battle of the Boyne. And the night before he left, there was a French officer who had stayed at their family home. And she was given the job of sort of tidying up the bedclothes the next day. And she finds what she calls a silver painted over instrument. And that was a reference to a kind of, um, well, it was a a silver urinary instrument, as she calls it rather. And it was something that um, men would use if they had venereal disease and were having difficulty urinating. But she uses it like a kind of (laughs) she-we, which is um, a kind of uh, part of her disguise. And and it's funny because when you read these stories, especially the 18th century ones, you, you get this sense of this playfulness, playing around with gender and playing around with the possibilities for women. And also there's a sexual context sort of undertone to this. Anyway, so she finds this instrument in the bread in the bed, and then she discovers later that this French officer was a woman. And so that was one of the other things that I found so interesting, sort of revisiting all of this material, was that was that there's almost like this kind of hidden history, this hidden sort of literary tradition in which women know about another woman who has done this, performed this role, or they read about them and that inspires them to go off. Um, So Hannah Snell is an interesting case because she also comes from a military family. Um, She's from Worcester, but in in Coventry, um, and then ends up becoming a Marine and sails off to, um, to India and is at the siege of Cuddalore where she claims to be wounded, but we think now that she may have been suffering from, uh, from scurvy. So Hannah Snell goes off for uh, five years uh, disguised as James Gray. She joins the Colonel John Geis's 6th Regiment of Foot, so in other words, she's in the infantry, um, and she also later enlists at Portsmouth under Colonel Fraser's Regiment of Marines. And so she's fighting in the first Carnatic War. So these are sort of colonial wars for the establishment of sort of um, British domination in India. And when she comes back at the end of her engagement um, in 1750, um, she tells her, you know, the men that she's been serving with that James Gray is actually Hannah Snell, surprise, surprise, especially for the ones that she'd been sharing a bed with. Um, and after that, she actually goes on stage and she performs at what is now Sadler's Wells. So she performs with her musket and um, she has other women marching with her, the sort of regiment of Amazons. And, um, and then a few years later, 
during the American Revolution period, um, there's a woman named Deborah Sampson who becomes a soldier. So we don't know whether she had read about Hannah Snell's story, but there's something very, um, uh, you know, it's almost like she's sort of following a pattern. So Deborah Sampson uh, serves, um, I mean, she signs on in uh, New England. Um, you know, she comes from a small town and she takes the bounty money. And I think that the bounty money was a really big incentive to, to do this, not only for, for um, Deborah Sampson, but for a lot of other women. But what Deborah Sampson does unwisely is she she's disguised as a man, takes the bounty money and goes off to the local pub and has a great time, and then goes back to her employer. So interestingly, she also is a domestic servant, and there are other cases of domestic servants who also go off and become soldiers or sailors. Throughout your book, there, there is kind of two sides to the way that society have viewed female soldiers. So there's this yeah. swashbuckling adventure story side, which we've discussed here of men dressing up as women and boarding ships. But there's also a, another side, a darker side, mm-hmm. which is women in the armed forces being seen either as a threat mm-hmm. or being dismissed for being sexually promiscuous, for example. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that side of the the myth of the female soldier. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, you know often these women face that question about well why would why would a woman want to do this and what is she doing on the battlefield? I mean, it's interesting if you sort of take a kind of long historical view because there's almost a kind of acceptance of these women. There's a kind of playfulness about the 18th century stories, but that changes by the time you know the 19th century rolls around, and I think it's at that point when the the uh, European armies become professionalized that, you know, there's not really a place for women any longer. And they're seen to be a a woman on the battlefield or a woman near the battlefield is seen to be suspect. So, so, you know, there is this question about, are they there because they're engaging in prostitution? Um, I mean, you found a lot of, a lot of that during the first world war, for example, obviously much later period where you have rumors about, for example, German women showing up at the front, or even prostitutes dressed as nuns showing up at the front, or poor old Dorothy Lawrence, who was our only documented case of an English woman who does make actually make it to the front and has a very short period of time in which she's working with a sapper unit. So these are this is a tunneling company on the Western Front. Um, so Dorothy was actually an aspiring journalist and had rung around and tried to get a commission from several um, uh, foreign news editors, and they all turned her down because she was a woman. And she thought, well, I'm just going to make it to the front, have my adventure, and then I'm going to write it up when I get back. But what happened was that um, she was having to sleep away from the men, and um, you know she was poorly fed just you know, couldn't cope basically physically. So she turned herself over to um, the commanding officer and um, the British army did not know what to do with her. So um, she was sent off to be interrogated because they had to decide, first of all, whether she was a spy, whether she, you know, there was any kind of threat that she represented. But there was definitely this question about, is she there engaged in prostitution. I mean, there were certainly were women engaged in prostitution at the front, but what was, you know, this woman wandering onto the battlefield? Why was, why was she there and what was she, what was she doing? And one of the details about her memoir, which is published in 1919, that I really um, found interesting was that the, um, 
the British army officers in charge of her interrogation. They didn't, they not only did not know what to do with her, did not only not know or understand why she might have been there, but there was no sort of physical safe space for her to be. So they put her in a convent, um, which I thought was wonderfully ironic. Um, and the nuns loved her. She, she said that, you know, they regarded her as this sort of heroine and were fascinated by why she had done this. Um, so I think that just gives you one example of, you know, this woman who who transgresses and is regarded as problematic. I think that highlights as well that there were real risks for women specifically um, in combat zones that maybe men didn't face. What kind of challenges or risks did these women face? Well, um, one of the one of the other accounts from the First World War um, is from. Marina Yurlova, who was only 14, and she came from, she was a Cossack, and her father, her father had enlisted, there was a sort of whole train of men who were going off to fight, um, and she sort of gets on this train by accident and winds up in this military camp thinking that her father is going to be there, and of course he's not, and so she doesn't know what to do, and so, you know, she can't just get on a train and go home again, so she's She's made a kind of pet by one of the regiments. Um, And then she becomes a soldier. And she describes how, you know, she's really young and she's sleeping with this group of men. And she describes sort of looking at these naked male bodies. And it's the first time she's ever seen a man naked. And they seem huge and hairy and kind of ugly and and sort of mildly threatening to her. and later on, she describes being uh, told by one of the officers that she has to come and clean his room. And of course, this is a pretext for him to, to you know, assault her. I mean, she doesn't describe it in those terms, but she describes an assault. And um, she also feels very offended that she's being treated as a girl rather than a soldier. And so the soldier, the kind of the the identity of the soldier almost becomes a kind of defense against these vulnerabilities. Um, Maria Bachkareva, who um, enlisted with the Tsar's army, found the same thing. So she describes when she enlisted um, the first time, night that she sleeps with a regiment that there are you know, hands reaching out to grab her and she slaps them off. And it's almost as if these women have to kind of prove themselves. They have to prove themselves as and establish themselves as non-sexual beings. So they have to occupy this kind of very kind of paradoxical role of, you know, trying to sort of almost overcome their gender. But they also, it's fascinating to me the way in which they managed to do that. And so, so Maria Bochkareva says that the men just sort of forget that she's a woman. I mean, her, her physical body um, becomes a kind of non-issue once she's been accepted and is doing all the things that the men do. And other women describe that experience as well. So, so yes, you're absolutely right that they're, they're, they are vulnerable, but you don't find many instances of these passing women or when I say that they're passing, often the men know that they're women, or even women who are in disguise. I mean, they're often they're very anxious about being found out, but they don't necessarily describe an experience of being um, sexually assaulted. You mentioned there that often women who were passing as men, the men surrounding them knew. What was behind that 
attitude? Was it that they assumed, oh, you know, it's they're doing their job well, it doesn't matter? You know, it's really interesting because there's not that many accounts where they admit that, that other people knew or that they go. I mean, there are some from the Russian, you know, these Russian women who had petitioned the Tsar, and there are actually actual documented news stories of women who say that they adopted a male disguise so that they could go off with their husband or, you know, when other people knew. And one of the best cases, one of the most um, interesting ones is of Sarah Emma Edmonds, who was a Canadian woman who, um, she grew up on a farm in New Brunswick, so she was very physically tough. Um, she, well, it's not quite clear why she left her home. It may have been because her father was trying to marry her off to an elderly farmer and she was having none of it. Um, it could have been that, you know, she had an unhappy love affair and she left because of that. In any case, she, she became Franklin Thompson and, uh, she started her male life selling Bibles at which she was very successful. And she found herself in Flint, Michigan when the American civil war broke out. And she becomes a nurse. So, you know, there are no female nurses or very few female nurses at that time. So she becomes a nurse in, for the Union Army. And one of her, and, and she befriends somebody by the name of Jerome Robbins. And Jerome Robbins writes a diary in which, you know, he's met Frank and he and Frank are great friends and they go off to church together. And sometimes they share a couch together as he describes it. And then, you know, when you're reading his diary, you come to the, the you come to these two pages that have been glued together, and there's a little note at the top that says not to be opened until after the author's death. And you open up the these two pages, and it and he describes how Frank confessed to him that she was a woman. And rather than say, you know, ask the question of why is a woman here? What is she doing here? Why is she enlisted? He just feels very betrayed by, you know, the secret that Frank had not disclosed to him earlier. And, you know, amazingly enough, their friendship continues um, and Jerome keeps a secret. But they're both very jealous because um, Jerome has a fiancé and Franklin, Jerome suspects, has um, taken up with another man, a married officer. And eventually, um, uh, Frank deserts the army, possibly. I mean, um, Sarah, Sarah Emma Edmonds would write later that she was suffering from malaria, and that's why she deserted. But it may have been because it all became too uncomfortable for her. Anyway, so she leaves, and, af and you know, even before the end of the war, she writes this account of her experience. Um, but she actually sort of covers up the fact, and, you know, there's very few references to the fact that she's actually disguised as a man in, the, um, in her account. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And, you know, they, they sometimes do a deep historical dive and do say that there were something like an estimated 400 women who fought during the American Civil War. You know, women have always been there, always fought, but this history has not been recorded. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Perhaps this um, is a tricky question because of the limits of terminology. But is your understanding that most of these women or a lot of the women that you came across in the book were passing as, as men for pragmatic and practical reasons rather than, for example, they were what we would call today transgender? I mean, one of the things that makes it so difficult, but I, I kind of like the difficulty of this, um, is that we have to read a lot of these accounts through other people's lens and through a historical lens as well, because the notion of having a sexual orientation or a sexual identity is a fairly modern concept. So on the one hand, I think a lot of women were doing this because it gave them access to so much that they couldn't have as women. So for example, it gave them access to money. It gave them access to a profession. I mean, you have, um, you know, the shipwright, Mary Lacey, who writes her memoir in the 18th century, and not only did um, leaving her job as a domestic servant uh, to become William Chandler uh, enable her to become a shipwright, um, carpenter, uh, but it also enabled her to have relationships with other women. So, you know, there was so much that women could gain. Sometimes they were running away from a really um, abusive relationship. I mean, there's lots of news stories of women on ships, so women, you know, women as sailors on merchant on merchant ships who were there because sometimes they say a stepfather, a cruel stepfather has forced them into it. Sometimes they say because they're running away from a cruel stepfather or an abusive husband. So there is this idea that that it offered them liberty, it offered them rewards that they couldn't have as women. But you also read through these accounts that some of them really enjoyed doing this as well. And it maybe it conformed more with how they felt about themselves, that they were masculine women. But I think that in a period when notions of what it meant to be male and female were so much more rigidly defined, you can understand, you know, that as a motivation. I mean, the one thing that we're really lacking is a lot of detailed accounts of how these women felt, um, you know, what their internal landscape was, as it were. They don't talk a lot about their bodies. 
Um, they only talk about them in passing. So I think there's a big question mark. And I would love to have a lot more information about how they were thinking and feeling and just the strategies that they employed. But, you know, if they're out there, I'd love to know. Um, when we get to the 20th century, that becomes less of a trend in the book. And it's more women um, entering the armed forces as women, um, rather than disguising themselves as men yeah. without the need to do so. Well, we, you know, I mentioned that we have these sort of two British accounts of two British women. There is um, Dorothy Lawrence, but there's also Flora Sands, who goes off to serve in the Serbian army. But she goes off as a woman. I mean, she's never disguised. Um, so I think it's a trend that, you know, there's plenty of cases of female husbands in the tabloid press in the 20s and 30s, but it kind of dies out and you don't really find those stories about passing women so much by the Second World War. And I had to really think about, well, you know, who are the um, the women who kind of carry on the legacy of the women warriors? And so that's why I decided to focus on service women in Britain and America. And one of the things that that was really interesting to me was the way in which there was this amazing connection between the Russian women, the Russian women who um, were um, particularly Maria Bochkareva's Women's Battalion of Death was sort of hugely popular as a kind of tabloid, not even a tabloid, you know, um, a press subject in 1917. And Emmeline Pankhurst befriended Maria Bochkareva. There was also an American philanthropist and suffragette named Flores Harriman, who also befriended Maria Bochkareva and invited her to Washington and also um, put her in touch with a ghostwriter. And that's how her memoir was written. Um, so these women in the Women's Battalion of Death and these other, other Russian women soldiers from the First World War were held up as kind of icons of female liberation. Then by the Second World War, you see a kind of repeat of that because you see, I mean, I've just written about uh, Ludmila Pavlichenko, who was a sniper um, with the Red Army and um, visited uh, both Washington and London in 1942, and she came. She came over as a kind of um, it was a kind of propaganda exercise, really trying to um, convince uh, the Allies to open up a second front. So, in other words, you know, help the Soviets fight the um, the German army on the on the Eastern Front. Um, but one of the things about that, um, one of the things I discovered was that. Um, these Soviet women, so not just the soldiers, but Soviet, you know, women taking up men's jobs, as it were, um, were were actually used by the British government as sort of propaganda figures. So when Ludmila Pavlichenko comes over, um, she's actually talking about how women should take up arms and sort of makes it acceptable, socially acceptable for women to be in combat and women to be in the services. That's something really interesting in your book that I was going to ask you about, this fact that in the when it, we get to the 20th century, a lot of the stories you um, relate are to do with Russia or Eastern Europe. Why do you think that there didn't seem to be the same squeamishness um, about women killing and women taking part in warfare actively in the Allied countries or um, traditionally Western bloc? Well, I think partly it was to do with the fact that there had been a tradition of women. I mean, we're not talking about sort of, 
necessarily mixed regiments or huge numbers of women being employed. Um, but there were certainly these celebrated cases of women, um, you know, in Eastern European countries. So, for example, I mentioned uh, Jeannie Merkus, who joined the uprising in um, Bosnia-Herzegovina um, in the 19th century, and um, uh, certainly during the First World War as well. So that's why, you know, when Flora Sands joins the Serbian army, there's another woman there named Malunka Savic, and she's also sort of quite celebrated in Serbia. Um, so I think that there was this acceptance of them, and, and uh, Marina Yurlova also talks about that, how women would go off with their men to war and, you know, this whole tradition, this, uh, as well as a mythic tradition of the female warrior. Um, so I think that that what happens, of course, in Britain and America during the Second World War, certainly, you know, in Britain, is that their labor was needed. And Winston Churchill actually actually talks about that. He actually talks about how we have to overcome this reticence about women and violence, women's proximity to violence, even though there's this long tradition and it's all been forgotten about. Um, so I think that there was an idea that that women didn't need to go off and fight and that women should be the keepers of the home and hearth and that we should separate sort of women who are mothers and keepers of the home from, you know, the idea of women picking up guns and entering battlefields because that's what men do. So that so these figures could be seen to be very transgressive and very threatening. As we've discussed, the Second World War saw more women joining the armed forces than ever before. What do you think that the consequences of this were on a personal level, but also on a societal level? Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that was really difficult for, um, you know, for example, British women, whether they were um, joining the auxiliary, one of the auxiliary services, or whether they were working in munitions, was that, um, you know, it opened up this space for them, you know, and like, you know, these other women warriors who were passing, they had access to money and they had access to this public sphere. And, you know, one of the one of the things that was surprised me looking at this material again was just how often the idea of the of the woman warrior was seen as, well, you know, this argument that, well, if women are going to take up arms and women are going to go off and fight, then therefore they should have the vote and they should have access to the political sphere. So there was a very important political dimension to this. And I think it must have been very difficult for those women, those particularly really young women who, you know, they're in the auxiliary services or they're working in a factory, getting really well paid, sense of camaraderie, sense of confidence, all of these things that the war has given them. And then the war ends and they're all expected to go back into the home and, um, and all that is forgotten about. And there's such a terrible pattern of that. And you can see it even in these individual cases of these uh, passing women. You know, they, they have a pretty rough time. So even Hannah Snell, who is celebrated, you know, her portrait is painted and sold. There, there's a, a best-selling book about her. Um, she falls into poverty and ends her life in Bedlam. Christian Davies ends her life, um, uh, at, she dies at the Royal Chelsea Hospital. But there's lots of women who, you know, they just fall into obscurity and poverty. And they're not celebrated in the same way that, you know, male veterans might be. They don't have anywhere to go. They're seen to be sort of peculiar. 
um, unless they're very lucky. I mean, there are a few that are sort of celebrated and given medals, for example, in France, but, you know, they're few and far between. And I think that that is, there's a kind of replication of that in the Second World War. At the end of the book, you bring this story up to date. But do you think that women in the military still face challenges today? Well, I looked on the Everyday Sexism website and I was pretty shocked to see how, yes, absolutely, um, you know, story after story after story of women saying that they don't feel that they belong. There's a lot of sexual abuse. I mean, the American military is actually, you know, there was that Senate hearing in 2018 uh, when we had these sort of very high-ranking female officers coming out and talking about their experiences of being raped um, and and feeling excluded and that the men still don't want them there. I, I didn't get the impression that this was across the board and that you know, a lot of progress has been made, but there's certainly a lot of women, I think, who are having a difficult time. If we take all of this into account, by which I mean the contents of your book, um, how do you think we need to alter our view of military history? Well, I think we have to accept that women have always been there, that that what we're looking at now when women are entering um, combat, you know, they're allowed to enter... Um, military, all military occupations in the UK and in the US, that we're looking at, um, we're looking at historical continuity rather than discontinuity. Um, and I think that the other thing that I would love to see is more women veterans writing their own stories or telling their own stories so that we understand what their actual experience is, because I think this is an area where, you know, they tend to be spoken for. And one of the things that I found when I was doing my research is that there are quite a, quite a number of women officers who have done research in this area and have also begun to write their stories. And I think that is beginning to change things. And, you know, they, they sometimes do a deep historical dive and do say that, you know, there were something like an estimated 400 women who fought during the American Civil War, or, you know, they point to cases like Deborah Sampson or um, Hannah Snell or Christian Davies, or, you know, all the way back to antiquity and to say that, you know, women have always been there, have always fought, but, you know, this history has not been recorded. That was Julie Wheelwright. Her book, Sisters in Arms, Female Warriors from Antiquity to the New Millennium, is available now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman.